My name is Michael Delgado, and I'm on special assignment for Art Report today. My interview with the internationally renowned artist Larry Bell is part of an expansive look into the work and life of the art world's premier collaborator and fabricator, Jack Brogan. Over a 70-year career, Jack has been the go-to magician for many of the light and space artists like Larry Bell, who over many years has worked with Jack on the conservation of his signature glass sculptures. You can find out more info about Jack and his significant contribution to contemporary art and several features in our report today. On the phone just days ago, I had the pleasure of catching up with the lively Bell and his great sense of humor at his Taos, New Mexico studio. Bell recently celebrated his 80th birthday, and he shows no signs of slowing down. Throughout his career, Bell has experimented with the nature of surface and its relationship to space. His work in large geometric compositions and freestanding glass structures is familiar to so many because so much of his work graces the permanent collections of numerous internationally recognized museums and institutions. Although the impetus of the interview was about Jack, and toward the end of the interview we talk about Jack's particular mastery, we use the opportunity to talk about Bell's work, the L.A. and New York art scenes in the 60s and 70s, his transition from painting to sculpture, and the role of chance in making art and in our lives. Larry Bell, welcome to Art Report today. Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah. Um, I, I uh, you know, I, I live in Los Angeles. I actually live very close to MoCA, and uh, so I was thrilled um, when uh, they recently acquired and installed that that, that piece in their um, sculpture courtyard, and uh, I've had the pleasure of being able to um, experience it at different times of the day. And um, great, yeah. I, I, you know, you probably do a better job describing it than I would. So if you would indulge, no, no, me. no, no, I can't no. describe my stuff. all right i'll give a stab i'll give it a stab Mm. the piece is called bill and coo which refers to a silly kids movie in the 1940s and because like many of bell's pieces it's named by the first thing that pops into his head when someone asks what do you call it like bell himself the piece cuts an imposing but somehow approachable figure in the courtyard it's composed of two large glass cubes each of which contain two additional cubes each standing roughly eight feet square. Coated in subtle, different, reddish, rose-like hues, the piece shifts in between shadow and light throughout the day, taking on different aspects and prompting the viewer to ponder a wide range of emotion. At noon, when there are no shadows, the piece sort of disappears and reappears as it reflects and interacts with the museum's architecture and the surrounding cityscape. During the time Los Angeles photographers call golden hour, the moment in the minutes just after sunset when light is magically diffused, nearby skyscrapers rake shadows across the piece at amazing angles. The gradient hues of red flood the plaza, turning the piece into both an instrument of, as well as a manipulator of daylight. At night, they're ingeniously lit such that they sort of glow and radiate and seem to take on a life of their own. You see... You you can describe it a thousand times better than I could. You, you <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that. 
I ventured to share with Larry a takeaway thought from the last time I visited the piece at sunset. At the risk of sounding like a fanboy, I said I thought that one of the things that's often left out of the discussion of light and space art is the dimension of time. I said if he spent more than the usual stop-and-pause museum moment to say, oh look, a Larry Bell, and actually watched the play of light and shadow over a period of, say, an hour, he became aware of time as a celestial construct, and that this added a spiritual dimension to the work. He wasn't so sure. Huh. And well, I haven't intended it all, but... No, that's, uh, thank you very much. I, I love your description of it. It's great. And also, yeah, you know, time time is one of the... Time in in <laughs> in a certain way is a lot like... Uh, the right angle it's always everywhere at once and um the the i hadn't thought of what you just described as an inherent part of the piece but i love the fact that the piece stimulated you to engage that thought it means i did my job right part of doing his job right according to larry is about improvisation Larry views himself and his work as all ad hoc all the time. Artists are often the last people to see what's actually going on in their work, so it was my turn to not be so sure. I told him I was surprised to hear him say in previous interviews that his work was all about mixing it up and improvising, when his work is so obviously engineered, meticulously constructed. Little could be really left to chance if he were to realize his initial vision. He, of course, put me in my place, nicely because that's just his way well that doesn't preclude spontaneity well i mean you know if you think about improvisation i mean like usually associated with you know sort of a slapdash in the moment jazz kind of thing as opposed to things that are you know highly constructed or like planned out and have you know assistance well doing pieces yeah. ahead of time and you know i i i think when you've worked with uh, in a certain format for long enough, um, you, you just about any decision you make is spontaneous um, and improvisational because uh, uh, you don't. It's not. It's no longer the mechanics of it are no longer an issue, mm-hmm. and um, so uh, everything is spontaneous, even though <laughs> even though it's square. You know, I mean, right. uh, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the ground is flat too, and so there's uh, uh, another element that I was given, and in fact, it's quite important to the structure of the pieces that the floor is flat, and um, mm. and uh, uh, if the floor is flat, I can put them anywhere. That's spontaneous spontaneity at work. Larry's trust in spontaneity might just be a product of the good fortune that seems to have come out of some happy accidents, or at least odd turns of luck. Two stories in particular come to mind. The first involves a time when Larry was enrolled at the Chouinard Art Institute, as part of the now legendary class that included many of the stars who would come to define a generation of West Coast artistry. Masters such as Robert Irwin, Billy L. Bankston, John Altoon, Ed Ruscheh, Lynn Folks, and Joe Good, just to name a few. 
They're in a drawing class taught by a sort of Obi-Wan character named Herbert Jepson. Larry experienced an epiphany. Interpreting Jepson's instruction in a way Jepson couldn't understand, Larry solidified his direction as an artist, but also caused Jepson to have him evaluated by the school psychiatrist. Jepson's reaction to his work precipitated Larry's exit from Chenard and set him on a different path. I suggested to Larry that odd luck seemed to be part of his success. Remembering back at the time, uh, everybody had a um, spiritual feeling about Jepson, and on the walls of his class were all were drawings done by early by former students and. They looked like they could have been done by a single person. They all were very mm. similar. And and so when people came into the class and sat down and started drawing the figure, the influence of how to do it was there on the walls. It was the, the work of prior students. However, Jepson talked about a certain – as he walked around the room looking at people's work, he talked about a certain kind of – energy flow that existed in the work that once you started drawing, the drawings had a, a, a kind of a, a spiritual energy that finished them. Well, I interpreted that as meaning that everybody in the room was what misunderstood what Jepson was talking about. It had nothing to do with the figure or the stuff that was around the room. It had to do with a, a, a kind of sensibility that had to do with the tactile, uh, hands-on aspect of drawing, which could be anything. It didn't have to be the figure. It could be anything. And I just, when I realized that everybody else was doing the wrong thing, I started doing something that I thought was the right thing. And that's when uh, Jepson noticed me. <laughs> Chouinard in those days was a grooming ground for Disney animators, and if not for Jepson's reaction, Larry might have been indentured to the studio system. Larry begged to differ and told me something I didn't know about him. No, I doubt it, uh, because uh, uh, I, I'm really not fit for employment, and I, I didn't realize it. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I didn't realize that then. I, I was born with a severe hearing loss that wasn't diagnosed until I was 46. I did oh terrible in school. I did, you know, and, and and the few little jobs I had, I got fired from all of them because I just did, I didn't hear when I was told to do this or that. So consequently, since I, I grew up not with a, not being able to hear things, I never learned how to listen. But, you know, my mind would wander, and, I, and that's just the way it was. Uh, there wasn't much chance of my being in a very disciplined kind of a job thing where you had to do something that you were paid for. The second time in which a chance wind seemed to blow Larry's boat in an auspicious direction was on the occasion of his first exhibition at Pace Gallery in New York. Pace, in the early 60s, was emerging as an important gallery, and it would stand with Leo Castelli and others of the time in showcasing a new crop of decidedly American artists. Testament to its management and vision, Pace is still a powerhouse today. 
Anxious to install his first New York show, Bell found that several of his glass sculptures had arrived broken. Forced to find another industrial resource that used his particular process of coating glass, Larry came upon someone who would become instrumental in the next phase of his career. And you, you had had some pieces delivered from here in L.A., and they, they, broke. Broke, they yeah, they, they uh, arrived broken. And yeah. because of that, you were you had to scramble and find somebody in New York. To fix you know, them. To, yeah, or you had to fix them. And, and, and it turns out that uh, by chance, this person then, you know, helps you acquire equipment and teaches. Well, he said to me, I'll find- never forget, he said, he said to me, it's great. After we paid him, the gallery put up the money to get this guy to do this thing, you know. Put the pieces I made had been made over a period of I don't know two years or something like that, and and uh, and so the nice guy who did the coatings for me let let me pay when I could and so on, but uh, the fellow who did the emergency repair he was a novelty metalizer in the Bronx. It's just that the 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 guy who did my work in Los Angeles originally was an optical coder, but the technique was exactly the same. It was just the use of the process that was different. And um uh the the novelty metalizer after he was finished doing my uh my project, he said, It's crazy for you to spend this kind of money for to do this. He's, he he says, Why don't you get a piece of equipment and do it yourself. And I told him I didn't know anything about any, you know, I never even held a wrench in my hand. I didn't know anything about <laughs> this kind of equipment, you know. He says, it's easy. There's nothing to it. And and uh, and I happen to have an old coder we're not using, and I'll sell it to you cheap. Well, the words rang in my ears, and I went back to the gallery. The show was very successful. And I just, uh, and they wanted me to stay in New York, so I decided I'd, uh, I'd buy the equipment with the money that we got from the sales of the work. And the gallery was very helpful with whatever else it took to get uh, a studio operating in New York. Larry would spend time in New York, but never really left home. Personally, I'm fascinated by the L.A. of the early 60s when it seemed to be bristling with both potential and conflict. A post-war boom, a vibrant music scene, old studio systems giving way to independent filmmakers, civil rights clashes. It was the days of the Ferris Gallery, the Chouinard Institute, L.A.'s first folk music joint, the Unicorn. It was Lenny Bruce. It was Dennis Hopper. I asked Larry if that period affected his self-awareness as an artist. It was a very rich time because of the participants in the scene I was in. They were the funniest people I'd ever met in my life. And we all functioned because of the level of humor that that operated between us and and. There was no better time because there was no funnier people to be around, and um, uh, and that's that's as simple as that. As far as what each of the artists did, 
their personal trip and so on. That was their trip. We we didn't have to try and, you know, nobody had to, the influence we each had over the other had nothing to do with what we made, with uh, how we, uh, how we respected each other. That's, that's it. And that, and so naming names, and that would be Billy Al Bankston. Yeah, yeah, Billy Al, John Altoon, uh, Robert Irwin, Ken Price, uh, Ed Moses, Craig Kaufman. Uh, just, you know, just about all the people that hung around the Ferris Gallery mm-hmm. and, uh, including the people that ran the Ferris Gallery. There was nobody goofier than Walter Hopps in the art scene <laughs> and pro- probably no, uh, nobody, um, uh, stand up funnier than Irving Blum. And, um, uh, <laughs> and that's, Speaking just for me, that's what tied me to wanting to pursue. If the rest of the art world was as funny as the immediate guys that I hung out with, then that's the world I wanted to hang around in. In L.A., Larry was working for The Unicorn, L.A.'s first folk music venue. A crappy little coffee house, a shoebox sliver of a space on Sunset Boulevard next to what, in the next year, would become the famed Whiskey A-Go-Go. In the heart of underground Hollywood, the unicorn was hit, avant-garde. They hosted poets like Maya Angelou and comedians like none other than Lenny Bruce. Lenny would bring people out of the woodwork to hear him. You know, in those days, he was the underground talent that, uh, uh, you know, people would travel a hundred miles to hear this guy, to be in the presence of this guy, because he was so incredibly funny. And again, there's humor. You know, that that that's the, probably the most addictive force there is, is humor. And um, he, he was supposed to come on at 8 o'clock for his first set and do 45 minutes, and then he'd come, he'd get down and, and and they would get a new house, you know, the people would leave and so on. Well, at 11 o'clock in the evening, he was still on his first set. And finally, they they just shut off the lights and dragged him <laughs> off the stage. And he went into a bit like he was being taken to the electric chair, you know. You know, the audience loved it. They thought it was just all part of his thing, and when in fact it wasn't. The crowd wouldn't leave, and the people standing online were getting hostile. The punchline to this story involves Larry being pressed in service as an entertainer. I went upstairs to this little office that was the owner's office, and I said to the owner, whose name is Herb Cohen, I said, Herbie, nobody's left. And Lenny was sitting in an office kind of chair, shaking like, uh, you know, like, just shaking and um so herbie said let's let's go downstairs so we went down and he looks at the room and he says uh did you bring your guitar i said it's in the car he said do a set so i i've got the guitar and started to sing uh one of my written one of my self-composed songs and I, before it was finished, halfway, the house was empty. And, um, 
This is why you, this is why you, you pursued. They the didn't like my shit at all. <laughs> so Larry avoided a music career. Had, okay. had they had they liked it, you might have pursued music instead of uh, instead of sculpture. No, it eventually would have failed me because I couldn't hear words. <laughs> shit i couldn't didn't know how to i didn't know how to tune my guitar you know i mean i wouldn't i made i i made up i made up the goofiest songs you know like it's hard it's hard to be blind and uh and uh oh lord spiders everywhere those those are two titles that i remember and um <laughs> Around that time, another group of artists was congregating in the Topanga Canyon area of L.A. Artists like Wallace Berman, Dennis Hopper, and Neil Young would come to represent all that was good and evil of L.A.'s Eden. I was curious if Larry and that clique had crossed paths. I, well, I knew Dennis, and I and I knew Wally. He showed at the Ferris Gallery, and that, and, right. and he was he was a friend. I didn't know him very well. He he was a good friend, or seemed like he was a good friend of Bankston's and Kenny's and all of those people that I admired so much, and um, and he was quite pleasant to me whenever we were at a party or an opening together. And so, you know, I I considered him a friend. He he certainly wasn't an enemy. He was part of a group of people that I profoundly respected, and and um. And the same went for uh, Dennis, who was, you know, he was the only movie actor, movie star I ever knew, really. And and he and was he, also he and when he was married to Brooke Hayward, they was the first person to buy a sculpture of mine. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Now he had a a compound or something out in Taos, didn't he? Was that before yeah. or after? You, did did uh, no 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 he uh, he got here before I did and and. Uh, I moved out here in 73, and I think he was up here around 69. Dennis had bought the famed Mabel Dodge Luhan house that had been renamed the Big House by locals, and he settled in for over a decade of bohemian life. He he was a little bit like Andy Warhol in that he paid for, he paid a lot of whatever money he had to keep his scene going, and that meant feeding uh, a lot of psychophants, you know, that were part of his scene. Speaking of Warhol, Larry was also immersed in the vibrant East Coast scene and would frequent the infamous Maxis Kansas City Bar in Soho. That was the best bar I ever w- ever went to, ever. The owner was a fantastic guy, a guy named Mickey Ruskin, and he... I don't know what the word is for a, like you an know, in- a master of ceremonies. Yeah, 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 exactly that. Exactly that. And um, his word was law is in in the way he ran his place. Nobody crossed him, and everybody, anybody who crossed him was thrown out the door. And and um, and, and if he didn't like the way his clients looked when they came to the front door, he wouldn't let them in. And, um, he, you know, he spent most of his time outside, um, uh, uh, filtering the, his clientele. People would want to come to, uh, 
you know, people from the Bronx or from uh, uh, New Rochelle or someplace like that yeah. would show up uh, to be in a, a, a weird place, uh, and he wouldn't let them in. He'd just say, oh, I'm sorry, we're full. And and, um, and as as five or six of these people were turning away, four of the scuzziest people you can even imagine seeing would walk in, and he'd open the door for them, you know. And so uh, <laughs> the sad thing was that a lot of a lot of guys were into drugs that killed them, and and they hung. They were part of the clientele, and. Um, and that included Mickey, the guy who owned the place. He, he OD'd. The original impetus of the interview was to get Larry's take on Jack Brogan, who's been so integral to the art making of so many artists and to the restoration of their work, including that of Larry Bell. And so I asked Larry to tell me about how he and Jack had worked together over the years. Turns out, Larry is a conservator's nightmare. When Jack would call me to say he's working on something a certain size, I would just send him the the proper glass parts coated, and he would put them on. I wouldn't charge him anything. I like the idea that the pieces will still exist, but if they're broken, they they you know they they should sure. be re- restored. You you get the picture of what I'm. Yeah, what it was making me think of was whether what you do is is repeatable, like if, if uh, and if you've documented these things. So like if, if a, you make a particular piece and it breaks, you can go, oh, that was panel X and I used this evaporation process and it, and it would be the same. Or if there's, you know, as you mentioned, chance before, if there's no way to really control it that precisely. Well, not the way I do it. There's no way. <laughs> <laughs> there are people that know what they're doing, but I try and not know what I'm doing. And and you know, and what you and what you see is the evidence of me not knowing what I'm doing. And that's um, uh, and I I like my life like that. <laughs> Michael Delgado, for Art Report today.